This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, and thanks for joining the programme. Let's start with a poem today. In some ways, it's a silly verse, but in others, it says quite a lot. It's by a poet who simply lists him or herself as Sam, and you can find it on www.poemhunter.com. It goes like this. Friends for life or enemies till death. I thought the first was true, but then I got to know you. This feeling isn't good, but neither was the fight. The fun times we used to share, but now I've had it up to here. I can't take this anymore. Someone's going to hit the floor. But this time we'll make it right. You'll get the message and I'll win the fight. Now I wonder if Sam did win the fight. But winner or loser, that's not why I included the poem today, but rather because it is a mirror into how we so often conduct our relationships. And it shows so well how our closest friend can become our direst enemy. Our relationships are often built on unstable grounds and so are fragile and cannot be trusted, even though when in the height of their power we are convinced that they will last forever as they are. That is one of the reasons Buddhism teaches us to be impartial and not to follow our innate urge to slot other beings into categories of friend, enemy or stranger. That urge is so strong that it operates automatically and without much thought we are apt to judge others in terms of whether they appeal to us or not. If you were with us last week, you might remember the mind training teachings we are going through contain this very point as a commitment. Be impartial about whoever we are facing. As Namkar Pal says in the text we are following, mind training like the rays of the sun, we should be impartial about the object of our mind training, whether it is human or inhuman, friend, foe or stranger, superior, inferior or equal, or high, middling or low. This is because we should practice compassion without distinction towards all sentient beings under the sky. And if we are universally impartial and compassionate to other beings, he also says we should be universally impartial and forceful against the disturbing emotions whose only function is to cause us suffering. You might remember he says, given that the disturbing emotions in our mind streams, the objects to be abandoned are to, sub- are to be subdued, it is not sufficient to apply a partial or alternative remedy. We should train in understanding the way the antidotes are to be applied in general without partiality to the disturbing emotions. This is because all these disturbing emotions are obstructions to liberation and omniscience and are equal in dragging us into the miseries of cyclic existence. So we need to be impartial if we are to have an unbiased attitude towards all. Being impartial is the last of the three points mentioned in the instruction always train in the three general points. And this instruction is the first that comes under the title The Irreversible Commitments of Mind Training. The other two points which we covered in our last program were firstly not thinking we can leave out basic trainings because we're followers of mind training and secondly we should not, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama puts it, act outrageously. Now acting outrageously means doing things without consideration for others, especially harming the environment, not caring about those who live in it. Nam Pell, in a rather sinister tone, says we should avoid digging harmful earth 
felling sinister trees, stirring noxious waters, visiting those afflicted with noxious diseases without precaution, or associating by view or behavior with those who are morally corrupt or possessed by spirits. Cue the Gothic music. So those are the three points that we ended the program with last week. And now, before we go on to the next instruction, let's think about our motivation as we usually do. Remember that the best motivation is bodhicitta, the intention to become enlightened so one can be of the greatest benefit to all other living beings. If you can have this intention for participating in the program today, that would be by far the most vast and beneficial. But if that's too much, at least think that this program may become the cause for your liberation and enlightenment. Thank you. Now keeping in mind that mind training like the rays of the sun is a commentary on another text titled The Seven Points of Mind Training, Nopka Bell goes on to say, the text says, engage vigorously in forceful cultivation and abandonment. These Tibetans like a muscular, even macho style of practice, don't they? Nothing too gentle about these instructions. Anyway, he explains this direction in the following way. In general, we're not supposed to employ force towards human or inhuman beings because it will provoke their anger and the inhuman beings holding a grudge will harm us in this and future lives as well as in the intermediate state. Amongst human beings, we should not behave forcefully towards those who have been kind to us or even towards our relatives and servants. Otherwise, the help they have previously given us will become worthless and a cause for anger. Towards whom, then, shall we be forceful? In general, all the faults of cyclic existence arise from its origin, action and disturbing emotions, and actions are produced because of disturbing emotions. Since among all the disturbing emotions, the misconception of self is chief, all our spiritual practices of hearing, contemplation and meditation involving our body, speech and mind should be concentrated forcefully on eliminating it. With regard to the method by which to do this, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life says, To do this will be my sole obsession. Holding a strong grudge, I shall meet them in battle. So here a disturbing emotion can destroy other disturbing emotions, but not otherwise. It would be better for me to be burned, to have my head cut off and be killed, than ever bowing down to my enemies the ubiquitous disturbing emotions. And then Nam Kapel goes on, so we must persevere in combating the misconceptions of self and familiarizing ourselves with concern for others. Regarding what we must do to give up our self-centered attitude, the text says, subjugate all the reasons for selfishness. That text he's talking about is, of course, the seven points of mind training. And he continues, we should suppress every instance of attachment and hatred that gives rise to exaggerated prejudices about friends, foes or strangers, the attractive and unattractive. This is because worldly phenomena in general are unreliable and relations between friends and foes in particular are uncertain. As the friendly letter says, and here he is quoting from Nagarjuna's letter to a friend, your father becomes your son, your mother your wife, and your enemies your friends. The opposite also takes place. Therefore, in cyclic existence, there's no certainty at all. 
Now remember the poem we quoted at the beginning of the program. This feeling isn't good, but neither was the fight. The fun times we used to share, but now I've had it up to here. I can't take this anymore. Someone's going to hit the floor. Here, an enemy is someone to overcome. Someone who you're going to make hit the floor. But His Holiness the Dalai Lama has a very different take on enemies. He actually sees them as very useful and deserving of our gratitude. He also has a different idea of what we mean by friend. Normally, when we call someone our friend, we think that they are special to us, in some way elevated above all others. Often people think that friends and loyalty to friends are just about the most important thing in life. Even when our friends' ethics may be a bit loose and they try to persuade us to join them in some dodgy activities. What happens if that is not how we define friends, but rather we go inward and try to develop a friendly and warm-hearted attitude to all beings, make all beings our friends? We don't see some as more special than others, even though our connection to some may be greater than to others. This is more how His Holiness sees true friendship. It has a universal rather than an individual aspect. Wouldn't that benefit us and all others so much more than the way we usually choose friends? But it's not so easy. His Holiness says that to develop such a warm-hearted attitude to all, whether conventionally friend or enemy, we have to work at it. Here are some excerpts from his book, A Compassionate Life, that explain better than I can. He starts off describing why enemies are so valuable. He writes, I must emphasize again that merely thinking that compassion and reason and patience are good will not be enough to develop them. We must wait for difficulties to arise and then attempt to practice them. And who creates such opportunities? Not our friends, of course, but our enemies. They are the ones who give us the most trouble. So if we truly wish to learn, we should consider enemies our best teachers. For a person who cherishes compassion and love, the practice of patience is essential, and for that, enemies are indispensable. So we should feel grateful to our enemies, for it is they who can best help us develop a tranquil mind. Furthermore, it is often the case in both personal and public life that with a change in circumstances, enemies become friends. Of course, it is natural and right that we all want friends. But is friendship produced through quarrels and anger, jealousy and intense competitiveness? I do not think so. The best way to make friends is to be very compassionate. Only affection brings us genuine close friends. You should take good care of others, be concerned for their welfare, help them, serve them, make more friends, make more smiles. The result? When you yourself need help, you'll find plenty of helpers. If, on the other hand, you neglect the happiness of others, in the long term, you will be the loser. In today's materialistic society, if you have money and power, you may seem to have many friends. But they're not friends of yours. They're friends of your money and power. When you lose your wealth and influence, you will find it very difficult to track these people down. The trouble is, that when things in the world go well for us, we become confident that we can manage by ourselves and feel that we do not need friends. But as our status or health declines, we quickly realize how wrong we were. 
So, to prepare for that time, to make genuine friends who will help us when the need arises, we ourselves must cultivate compassion. Though sometimes people laugh when I say it, I myself always want more friends. I love smiles. Because of this, I have the problem of knowing how to make more friends and how to get more smiles, in particular, genuine smiles. There are other kinds of smiles, such as sarcastic, artificial or diplomatic smiles. Many smiles produce no feeling of satisfaction and sometimes they can even create suspicion or fear, can't they? But a genuine smile really gives us a feeling of freshness and is, I believe, unique to human beings. If these are the smiles we want, then we ourselves must create the reasons for them to appear. So how do we make friends? Certainly not through hatred and confrontation. It's impossible to make friends by hitting people and fighting with them. A genuine friendship can emerge only through cooperation based on honesty and sincerity, and this means having an open mind and a warm heart. This, I think, is obvious from our own everyday interaction with others. His Holiness then goes on to say, Some of my friends have told me that while love and compassion are marvelous and good, they're not really very relevant. Our world, they say, is not a place where such virtues have much influence or power. They claim that anger and hatred are so much part of human nature that humanity will always be dominated by them. I do not agree. We humans have existed in our present form for about a hundred thousand years. I believe that if during this time the human mind had been primarily controlled by anger and hatred, our population would have decreased. But today, despite all our wars, we find that the human population is greater than ever. This clearly indicates to me that while anger and aggression are surely present, love and compassion predominate in the world. This is why what we call news is composed of mostly unpleasant or tragic events. Compassionate activities are so much part of daily life that they're taken for granted and therefore are largely ignored. If we look at basic human nature, we can see that it is more gentle and aggressive. For example, if we examine various animals, we notice that animals of a more peaceful nature have a corresponding body structure, whereas predatory animals have a body structure that is developed according to their nature. Compare the tiger and the deer. There are great differences in their physical structures. When we compare our own body structure to theirs, we see that we resemble deer and rabbits more than tigers. Even our teeth are more like a rabbit's, are they not? They're not like a tiger's. Our fingernails are another good example. I cannot even harm a rat with a swipe of my fingernails alone. Of course, because of human intelligence, we are able to devise and use various tools and methods to accomplish things that would be difficult to accomplish without them. But because of our physical situation, we belong to the gentle animal category. We are, after all, social animals. Without human friendship, without the human smile, our lives become miserable. The loneliness becomes unbearable. Such human interdependence is a natural law. That is to say, according to natural law, we depend on others to live. If, under circumstances, because something is wrong inside us, our attitude towards our fellow human beings on whom we depend becomes hostile, how can we hope to attain peace of mind or a happy life? 
according to basic human nature or natural law, interdependence, giving and receiving affection, is the key to happiness. This fact may become more evident if we reflect on the basic pattern of our existence. In order to do more than just barely survive, we need shelter, food, companions, friends, the esteem of others, resources and so on. These things do not come about from ourselves alone, but are all dependent on others. Suppose one single person were to live alone in a remote and uninhabited place. No matter how strong, healthy or educated this person were, there would be no possibility of his or her leading a happy and fulfilling existence. If a person is living, for example, somewhere deep in the African jungle and is the only human being in an animal sanctuary, given that person's intelligence and cunning, the best he or she can do is to become, perhaps, king of the jungle. Can such a person have friends? Acquire renown? Can this person become a hero if he or she wishes to become one? I think the answer to all these questions is a definite no. For all these factors come about only in relation to other fellow humans. When you are young, healthy and strong, you sometimes get the feeling that you are totally independent and do not need anyone else. But this is an illusion. Even at that prime age of your life, simply because you are a human being, you need friends, don't you? This is especially true when we become old. As we grow old, we need to rely more and more on the help of others. This is the nature of our lives as human beings. In at least one sense, we can say that other people are really the principal source of all our experiences of joy, happiness and prosperity, and not only in terms of our day-to-day -day dealings with people. We can see that all the desirable experiences that we cherish or aspire to attain are dependent upon cooperation and interaction with others. It is an obvious fact. His Holiness goes on to say that even our spiritual progress to higher realizations and powers depends on our interaction and cooperation with others. And when we achieve our goal to fully benefit others, we need those others to benefit. He continues, Even from a totally selfish perspective, wanting only our own happiness, comfort and satisfaction in life, with no consideration of others' welfare, I would still argue that the fulfillment of our aspirations depends on others. Even the committing of harmful actions depends on the existence of others. For example, in order to cheat, you need someone as the object of your act. All events and incidents in life are so intimately linked with the fate of others that a single person on his or her own cannot even begin to act. Many ordinary human activities, both positive and negative, cannot even be conceived of apart from the existence of other people. Because of others, we have the opportunity to earn money, if that is what we desire in life. Similarly, in reliance upon the existence of others, it becomes possible for the media to create fame or disrepute for someone. On your own, you cannot create any fame or disrepute no matter how loud you might shout. The closest you can get is to create an echo of your own voice. Thus, Interdependence is a fundamental law of nature. Not only higher forms of life, but also many of the smallest insects are social beings who, without any religion, law or education, survive by mutual cooperation based on an innate recognition of their interconnectedness. 
the most subtle level of material phenomena is also governed by interdependence. All phenomena, from the planet we inhabit to the oceans, clouds, forests and flowers that surround us, arise in dependence upon subtle patterns of energy. Without their proper interaction, they dissolve and decay. One great question underlies our experience, whether we think about it consciously or not. What is the purpose of life? I believe that our life's purpose is to be happy. From the moment of birth, every human being wants happiness and does not want suffering. Neither social conditioning, nor education, nor ideology affects this. From the very core of our being, we simply desire contentment. Now, I don't know whether the universe with its countless galaxies, stars and planets has a deeper meaning or not, but at the very least it is clear that we humans who live on this earth face the task of making a happy life for ourselves. His Holiness goes on to make the point that we are not machines, we have feelings and experiences. If we were mechanical, then material objects might make us contented. But, he says, no material object, however beautiful or valuable, can make us feel loved. We need something deeper, what I usually refer to as human affection. With human affection or compassion, all the material advantages that we have at our disposal can be very constructive and can produce good results. Without human affection, however, material advantages alone will not satisfy us, nor will they produce in us any measure of mental peace or happiness. In fact, material advantages without human affection may even create additional problems. So, when we consider our origins and our nature, we discover that no one is born free from the need for love. And although some modern schools of thought seek to do so, human beings cannot be defined as solely physical. Ultimately, the reason why love and compassion bring the greatest happiness is simply that our nature cherishes them above all else. However capable and skillful an individual may be, left alone, he or she will not survive. However vigorous and independent we may feel during the most prosperous periods of life, when we are sick or very young or very old, we depend on the support of others. His Holiness then goes on, As human beings, we all have the potential to be happy and compassionate people, and we also have the potential to be miserable and harmful to others. The potential for all these things is present within each of us. If we want to be happy, then the important thing is to try to promote the positive and useful aspects in each of us and to try to reduce the negative. Doing negative things, such as stealing and lying, may occasionally seem to bring some short-term satisfaction, but in the long term they will always bring us misery. Positive acts always bring us inner strength. With inner strength we have far less fear and more self-confidence and it becomes much easier to extend our sense of caring to others without any barriers, whether religious, cultural or otherwise. It is thus very important to recognize our potential for both good and bad, and then to observe and analyze it carefully. This is what I call the promotion of human value. My main concern is always how to promote an understanding of deeper human value. This deeper human value is compassion, a sense of caring and commitment. No matter what your religion and whether you are a believer or a non-believer, without them 
you cannot be happy. Let's examine the usefulness of compassion and a good heart in daily life. If we are in a good mood when we get up in the morning, if there's a warm-hearted feeling within, automatically our inner door is opened for that day. Even should an unfriendly person happen along, we would not experience much disturbance and might even manage to say something nice to that person. We could chat with a not-so-friendly person and perhaps even have a meaningful conversation. Once we create a friendly and positive atmosphere, it automatically helps to reduce fear and insecurity. In this way, we can easily make more friends and create more smiles. But on a day when our mood is less positive and we are feeling irritated, automatically our inner door closes. As a result, even if we encounter our best friend, we feel uncomfortable and strained. These instances show how our inner attitude makes a great difference in our daily experiences. In order to create a pleasant atmosphere within ourselves, within our families, within our communities, we have to realize that the ultimate source of that pleasant atmosphere is within the individual, within each of us, a good heart, human compassion, love. Compassion doesn't only have mental benefits, but it contributes to good physical health as well. According to contemporary medicine, as well as to my personal experience, mental stability and physical well-being are directly related. Without question, anger and agitation makes us more susceptible to illness. On the other hand, if the mind is tranquil and occupied with positive thoughts, the body will not easily fall prey to disease. This shows that the physical body itself appreciates and responds to human affection, human peace of mind. Another thing that is quite clear to me is that the moment you think only of yourself, the focus of your whole reality narrows, and because of this narrow focus, uncomfortable things can appear huge and bring you fear and discomfort and a sense of feeling overwhelmed by misery. The moment you think of others with a sense of caring, however, your view widens. Within that wider perspective, your own problems appear to be of little significance, and this makes a big difference. If you have a sense of caring for others, you will manifest a kind of inner strength in spite of your own difficulties and problems. With the strength, your own problems will seem less significant and bothersome to you. By going beyond your own problems and taking care of others, you gain inner strength, self-confidence, courage, and a greater sense of calm. This is a clear example of how one's way of thinking can really make a difference. One's own self-interest and wishes are fulfilled as a byproduct of actually working for other sentient beings. As the well-known 15th century master Tongkapa points out in his great exposition of the path to enlightenment, the more the practitioner engages in activities and thoughts that are focused and directed towards the fulfillment of others' well-being, the fulfillment or realization of his or her own aspiration will come as a byproduct without having to make a separate effort. Some of you may have actually heard me remark, which I quite often do, that in some sense the bodhisattvas, the compassionate practitioners of the Buddhist path, are wisely selfish people, whereas people like us are the foolishly selfish. We think of ourselves and disregard others, and the result is that we always remain unhappy and have a miserable time. And that is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And that is all for us today for our time is up. 
Please dedicate any positive potential from her program today to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll do so again next week. May all the blessings of the Triple Gem be continuously with you. Thank you and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.